Exodus chapter 21. By way of review, last week we're reminded that God has spoken. Over and over, God does speak, and He speaks primarily through His Word. He also uses circumstances and so forth in the uh, aspects of life. But we're reminded that we're not to let anything get in the way of our worship and the one and only true God. The sacrifices that we learned last week that, that really do please God is a sacrifice of praise on our lips to Him. It's so easy to come into church on a Sunday morning and just to sing out. And I'll tell you, it's, one of my, it's my favorite time of the week to be able to come in and to see everybody and to, you know, hugs are flowing freely and everybody's loving each other. And, you know, it ought to be that kind of a place, right? Uh, I mean, we deal with enough in the world, everyday work-a-day work world and the, str- the stresses and the frustrations and anxieties. We ought to be able to come into the house of God and be encouraged, and not be all you know, tied up in arguments and de- debates and, and frustrations. We ought to be able to come in here. But it's really easy to come in on a Sunday morning and everyone just sings out and praises God. And, but what about when we leave? I've been reminded a couple times over the last couple of years when Casting Crowns came up with the song Between the Altar and the Door. You know, what happens between the altar and the door is significant, but what happens when we get beyond the door? When life happens where the rubber meets the road and we're really challenged and tried. And we're, we're going to be talking about some of those things this morning. But the thing that God is pleased with is a sacrifice of praise on our lips. We learned that last week. So as we come into these next few chapters of Exodus, we'll learn about what the Bible calls the Book of the Covenant. Uh, this section is usually passed over by a lot of preachers, and it's really easy to see why. You kind of look at it at first glance and say, what is that in the world have to do with me and how I live my life? Well, I'm glad you have those questions because we're going to answer that in a few moments. But it's usually passed over um, because it gives instruction about living for God in everyday life. So we're going to take, take our, uh, and make our way through it. But not only did the book of the covenant teach about living for God in everyday life, it also taught the children of Israel how to practically apply the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue in various circumstances of everyday life. But specifically, it's set in the context of Israel, the Israel as a nation. So some scholars make the point that the Israelites received their laws from other civilizations. Well, in part that may be very true to some extent, but most cultures had general laws concerning murder, stealing, other crimes. But some of the laws found in the Book of the Covenant were more specific. For example, uh, the Book of the Covenant offered protection for the poor and for women that were not observed in the laws of other cultures. But the greatest difference between the laws of the Israelites and the laws of other cultures and civilizations was that the Israelites were in a covenant relationship with God. They were God's chosen people. And if you remember, going back, and we're reminded often as you look back into the beginning of the book of Exodus, what was God's desire for the children of Israel? To bring them out of captive, to get out away from Pharaoh's bondage. Why? So that they could truly worship me, God said probably in like 12 different places, it talks about God doing what He was doing so that they might be focused on worshiping Him and Him alone. So God had a reason. He had a relationship with them that He wanted to honor and glorify. Other civilizations made well-meaning laws for the good of their people. But the Israelites received their laws from God Himself. And one thing to remember here, though, is this. The Ten Commandments were penned from the finger of God. The Book of the Covenant was penned from Moses, 
not in stone, but in parchment, according to Exodus 24.4. So it was man's application of what God had told them to live out in their everyday life. So this morning, I want to, once again, I just want to look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, as these laws refer to slavery. And then we're going to, once again, just go before the Lord and ask His blessing upon it. So beginning with verse 1, if you would follow along. These are the ordinances that you must set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master, and the man must leave alone. Verse 5, But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man, his master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master must place, pierce his ear with an owl and he will serve his master for life. Do you get that? That is quite a statement right there. But we're also going to notice the motivation behind it. Verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she is not to leave as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing to her master who chose her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has acted treacherously towards her. Or if he chooses her for his son, he must deal with her according to the customary treatment of daughters. If he takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of his first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any exchange of money. Lord God, I pray that you'd help us as we go through this passage. To teach us what we need to learn. But Lord, more than just learning factual information about slaves in the days of Moses, I pray that you help us to find the application that we may apply to our hearts and our lives in serving the one and only true God. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look through this, in part, this is why we don't put the same amount of weight on these as we do the Ten Commandments, because they were given by man. I believe that God instructed Moses, but they are penned on parchment, not in stone, by the hand of Moses rather than the finger of God. The Book of the Covenant was not designed to address every situation that could arise in a given culture. Specifically, the Book of the Covenant was for the nation of Israel, However, the book of the covenant does give us some parallels and applications that fit where we live today. And we're going to find out what those are in just a few moments. But as we study this section of Exodus, we're going to see several applications as to where these things can be lived out. And as Philip Graham Riken shared, regulations about livestock grazing in the field may seem mundane. But what about when our neighbor borrows a video and fails to return it? What about when someone is spreading rumors about us that we know are false and you just want to take care of business? Uh, What happens when um, an argument turns into a fist fight? say, well, that would never happen in my life. Well, a lot of well-meaning Christians end up in fist fights every day across America. So in other words, this book of the covenant, it is really about everyday life and how to handle these circumstances. 
So the first category that we're going to look at this morning within the text is that of manservants. Male servants, if you will. The book of the covenant begins with slavery, which is really where the Ten Commandments began. Because think about this. They were enslaved unrighteously to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And over and over, he brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And it's how interesting here that Israelites knew all too well how it felt to be a slave. And now that they were free, God did not want them to treat one another in the way that Pharaoh had treated them. And so, God gave them regulations as to how the relationship between masters and slaves should take place. One might think that God, knowing how the Israelites were treated in Egypt, might abolish slavery altogether. But God, as we know, sometimes doesn't do that. Sometimes God doesn't respond how we think He should respond. And even though He was not for the slavery of His children in Egypt, this is a kind of a different picture, so to speak. So God gives guidelines as to how the relationship between a master and a slave should function. But before we go any further, let's get the idea of what a slave was, just so that we're all on the same page. Slavery, as we read about in this text of Scripture, is not involuntary slavery. God hates that. This is not involuntary slavery. This was not about slave trade that went over to countries on the continent of Africa and took people away and forced them into slavery. This is not that. Uh, It's not about what took place in Ireland and pulling all those hundreds and thousands of Irishmen and putting them into a slave and making them perform. This is not that. Slavery here has a different picture altogether. God condemns involuntary slavery in chapter 21, verse 16. So the idea of slavery found in this text is really that of voluntary service. And that kind of goes against our way of thinking in our minds because when we think of slave, we think of one thing. We think of somebody who has no rights and somebody who is forced to do something that his master wants him to do. That's not the picture found in Exodus here. So, when we think about this, this is an entirely different idea. So, some people thought because of their lot in life that it might be easier to serve as a voluntary slave, as a more guaranteed form or means of providing for their families. At least in Israel, some people would hire themselves out as slaves, literally servants, as a means to an income. You say, well, that's crazy. Why does the Bible talk about that? Well, it's just as it were, some people were in different structures economically than others. And as a way of providing for themselves or for some of them who had wives or children, they would voluntarily submit themselves to be bought into slavery as a servant, as a guaranteed form of providing for their families. So slavery as we know it after the Civil War versus what it was in the book of Exodus, two entirely different things. One voluntary, one involuntary. And the purpose behind it was to provide for their family. But, just so there's no confusion, what God pulled Israel out of in Egypt, He wanted to make sure was not what would take place in the nation of Israel. So two different ideas, two different aspects, so forth. 
So another difference between a slave or servant in Israel versus anywhere else in the world was that slavery was temporary. The slave would serve for six years and then he would go free. Consider this, however, he was not sent away empty-handed. So it's entirely, entirely different from voluntary slavery versus involuntary slavery. As a voluntary slave, he knew that there was light at the end of the tunnel. He knew that there was hope when he got done serving. So in the seventh year, he was allowed to go free. But notice what the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 15. In fact, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you would turn there just for a moment. Chapter 15. I want to read just a couple of verses here, beginning with verse 12. And this is, read, this is dealing with the release of slaves, as discussed in this passage. It says, If your fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. When you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. So he's not going away Say, well, my time is done now, I'm just hitting the road. Yes, I've been taken care of, I've been given food, I've been given clothing, I've been given a life, I've been given a means to provide, but now I'm done. Now what? He's not to be sent away empty-handed. Verse 14, look at these words. Give generously to him from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. You are to give him whatever the Lord your God has blessed you with. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, and that is why I am giving you this command today. So he was very careful to instruct them that when their time of serving was done, they did not go away empty-handed. God made sure in, in, in His commands that they would be taken care of. Just like the Ten Commandments uh, inserted a law for the Sabbath, so the Book of the Covenant set up a guideline for temporary service Serve six years, then go free. And just like the government was going to set up the freed slaves with 40 acres and a mule after the Civil War, so was the Israelite master to give their freed servants plenty to live on, just like they were given plenty from God as He redeemed them and set them free from Pharaoh's bondage. The slaves were enslaved by their debt to some extent, but by serving their time, they could pay their debt and become productive members of society when they were released from their service. So as they would serve these six years, and then the master was to let them go generously, or with a generous amount of goods, and then they could what? Set up their own farm. They could set up their own way of making a living and providing for their own family. But there's one final difference between a slave in Israel versus for other forms of slavery. Uh, a slave family was kept together. Whereas in pre-Civil War days, a slave family more than likely was often separated. Husbands were separated from wives. Parents were separated from their children. Not so the case in biblical time frame. In biblical times, God preserved the sanctity of marriage by keeping the slave family together. The only downside to this principle was if the slave married another slave and bore children. The woman, if she was owned by the master prior to the marriage, remained property of that owner. So however, remember, most of the time the male slave had a debt to pay. He's been given home. He's been given clothing. He's been given food and shelter. 
and as a result has debt to pay for six years. But once he fulfilled his debt, he was free to leave. Yet he could go on to buy his family's freedom. In fact, we read about this in, in Leviticus. If you would turn over to Leviticus chapter 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 25. I want to read verses 47 and following. Verse 47. If a foreigner or temporary resident living among you prospers, but your brother living near him becomes destitute and sells himself to be a foreigner living among you or to a member of a foreigner's clan, he has the right of redemption after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him. His uncle or cousin may redeem him. Or any of his close relatives from his clan may redeem him. If he prospers, he may redeem himself. The one who purchased him is to calculate the time from the year he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. The price of his sale will be determined by the number of years. It will be set for him like the daily wages of a hired hand. If many years are still left, he must pay his redemption price in proportion to them based on the purchase price. If only a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he will calculate and pay the price of his redemption in proportion to his remaining years. He will stay with him like a man hired by year by year. A foreign owner is not to rule over him harshly in your sight. If he is not redeemed in any of these ways, he and his children are to be released at the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites are my slaves. They are my slaves that I bought, brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. There is always that light at the end of the tunnel. There is always that hope that at some point, when my service is complete, I gain freedom. And that's interesting here, because in other circumstances, it may have been a circumstance where in other forms of slavery, it was just over. Their life as they knew it was gone, never to be redeemed returned but god set up parameters so that when they were to leave they could be a productive member of society well then there's also maid servants back in our or, or, uh, uh, the female slaves as you were, were says not fair you might say not first right away anyway god's law was supposed to be different than israel right well god's laws were supposed to lead people into freedom not keep them from uh, obtaining it so one must understand the culture to understand what might take place having been freed would send his daughter into slavery or servitude in hopes that she would become part of the family in which she was to serve. You know, you read through this passage in Exodus chapter 21 and it really is interesting. So, verse 3. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master, and the man must leave alone. So what happens to these children that are born between two slaves, a male and a female? Well, God's Word takes into account those circumstances. So having been freed, um, you say, well, that's not right, but what about the children? What, what happens to them? Well, several things could happen. So, one of three things specifically. Number one, the master could let her return to her family. If he was a kind master, and he feels like his, uh, uh, the obligations have been, have been met, if the debt has been paid and they have served well, he could let them go. And they could go somewhere as a family 
maybe on a portion of his land, maybe in a different portion of land, he could, by choice, let them go. Number two, the master would, could allow her to be engaged to his own son, almost as it were like adoption. And that was kind of the hopes, that when a slave, two slaves, a male and female, would have children, that maybe the daughter would be taken into the family that purchased them. Can you imagine that just for a moment? Think about that. A slave child taken in as a daughter to marry a, a slave owner's son. That's a beautiful picture. And that was the hopes, oftentimes. Or the master would make sure her needs would be met if the engagement was broken. So either way, the children, there was a means by which they would be taken care of as well. Going back up to Leviticus, a slave who is freed could purchase his relatives, his, his, uh, his family, but the children could either be set free, they could be brought into the family as their own children, or um, if the engagement was broken, they would be taken care of for life. There was these parameters set in life, set into place, so that there was a guaranteed level of success as they were set free. I want to draw our attention to two verses here. And this is where I want to draw the application for us sitting here in this auditorium this morning. Look at verses 5 and 6. We know the situation. We, we, we read about the laws about the Hebrew slaves. We understand that there's six years and then there's a seventh year could go free. We understand that sometimes children were born as a result of these relationships. We know that there are circumstances put in place. But what about you and I sitting in here in the auditorium this morning? How does it relate to you and I? I want to draw the parallel here. Verse 5. But if the slave declares, I love my master. You say, well, is that possible? Is that realistic? Could that actually take place where a slave could actually say, I love my master? Yes. And quite often it was the case. Because get in our minds, it was not the same as involuntary slavery as we had pictured in pre-Civil War days. It was a different picture. The picture of voluntary servitude. I give myself to be your servant. Your slave. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man. His master then is to bring him to the judges. It is made legal. They have chosen of their own free will to remain in this environment. And then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master must pierce his ear with an owl and he will serve his master for life. Get that in your mind's eye just for a moment. Here's a family or at least an individual who has been voluntarily sold into slavery to be a servant to his master who says, I don't want to be set free. I don't want to leave. I love my master. I love my family. He has been good to us. We choose to stay here. And then going before the judges, and they will legalize it. And then he goes over to the doorpost. Think about this. 
This is not Claire's beauty boutique and getting a little and get an earring in your ear. Lay that baby out there and get your finger out of the way. Boom! You say, was it that graphic? Yeah, I do believe it was, and I'll tell you why. As a slave would put his ear on the post, there was a crude metal piece that was often about a quarter inch in diameter, and they would put his ear, and they would pin it up there, and then with a mallet, they would smash that thing right through, right through his ear. And what would happen there is significant. Number one, the ear was considered the most important part of the slave. Why? Because it was the slave's job to listen to what his master told him to do and to do it. If he did not listen, he could not perform. So in that day, the ear was considered one of the most important parts of the body because he had to be able to listen in order to perform. And so the ear was voluntarily given as a symbolic picture of my willingness to be a slave. Which was the second thing. The act demonstrated an attachment to his master's household. But number three, there's the significance of it. As his ear was crudely put on the doorpost, and that owl would be pounded into it, a hole was made for the earring, but also something remained. The blood. The blood remained. And it was a reminder to the people of the relationship between a master and a slave as he would go through the door. The earring represented a chosen act of service. Think about this. I don't know about you, but that just, just the thought of having your ear boom with an owl and a mallet does not sound fun. But it was a voluntary act of service and really submission to his master. But you notice the motivation behind it. Found there in verse 5. But if the slave declares, I, what? Love my master. You see, love will get you to do what nothing else can. You ever thought about that? When you love someone, you'll do for them what you will do for no one else. Is that true? How many of you dads enjoyed cleaning up puke when your kids were little? How many of you dads love staying up all night holding? I can remember when David or Jacob was sick, sleeping upright in a couch because his chest was clogged and sitting up, and you forfeit sleep because your children need a certain aspect to heal. I mean, how many of you dads really enjoyed some of the grunt work you've had to do over the years to put food on the table? Why'd you do it? Because you love your family. When you love someone, you will do almost anything to prove that love, will you not? I'm telling you, I've had some junk jobs I've hated in my first years of marriage. I couldn't stand being up there in that stupid metal box on top of a roof and taking tear, you know, tar off a roof, and I mean, it's like 127,000 degrees in there, and I'm like, yeah, I hated it. But why did I do it every day? I love my family, and I need to provide for them. Love is such an incredible motivation factor. 
When you love someone, you'll do anything for them. Is that true? And the slave says, I love my master. And because I love my master, I'm willing to stick my ear on the doorpost. And I'm willing to let, the, let my master boom with a mallet and put a hole through it and leave that blood reminder on the doorpost of my voluntary relationship with my master. I want you to think for a moment of the greatest slave that ever came to this earth. You know the passage. I'm going to read it to you just for a moment. Ephesians chapter, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2. And he says this in verse 5. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Look at this, verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a, what's the word? Slave. He loved his God, his Father, so much that he was willing to lay aside the splendor of heaven to come down to this earth to be a slave. Taking on the likeness of men, is there any other greater example than that? You see, when we love our Master, we'll do anything for Him. Think about that. Nobody forced the slave to go have his ear mashed and a ring to be put in it. It was voluntary. And you ever notice in our walk with God, God, for those of us who know Him, He doesn't force us to do anything. There's no whip standing over us. Go ahead, go ahead. What does God want from us? Is it any different that God would want us to serve Him voluntarily out of a heart of love for Him and as a result do anything that He asks us to do? Be anything that He asks us to be because we love Him. You see, the picture is incredible. But if we leave it alone as just a picture, so what? It's the action that validates it. Our service for the Lord. And living the life that He's called us to live. I just want to read two more passages very quickly. Just go ahead and listen as I read the verse. Mark chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. I'll probably have it up on the screen faster than I can find it. Hebrews 10.45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. What greater example, what greater demonstration of servitude could we get than that of our Lord Jesus Christ? And one final passage I want to highlight this morning. In Psalm chapter 40. Verses 6 through 8. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. Think about that once again. The most important part of being a slave. The ears. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I said, see, I have come. It is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction lives within me. 
says, I delight to do your will. You see, when we voluntarily give ourselves to God as his slave, as his servant, if we truly love him, we'll want to serve him. Isn't that what Matthew tells us? If you love me, keep my commands. And then he goes on and says, my, my commands are not grievous. My commands are really rational. They're very realistic. But it all comes down to our love for him as to whether or not we will serve him. What a great example of what took place. I mean, why, why does God care about, I mean, so you're not under bondage, slave, you know, bondage of uh, Egypt, you're not under materials, you know, hand anymore, so what? wait a minute, it's not the end of slavery. It's just the beginning of learning how to serve. It's the beginning. And it relates to the New Testament. He wants us to be his servants. Voluntarily. Not as robots. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Yes, Lord. I love you, Lord. No. It's your choice. It is your choice. But I love what Romans 12 says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable in God, which is your what? What's the word? Reasonable. In light of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, it's your reasonable. Not unrealistic. It's not irrational. It's reasonable to worship him in this way. But close with this thought. If the master says, I lo- or the slave says, I love my master, if you love him, would you be willing to offer your ear in a service, a lifelong service? Not just the six years any longer, but for life. To be the person that he wants your, your master wants you to be to do what your master wants you to do. That's a challenge. (laughs) That's a challenge, I think, for any of us who's trying to live for God. But it's your choice. No one can force you. I will say there are consequences when we don't obey. But no one can force you. It has to be your own free will. Will you choose to live for your master? Dearly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word and even the practicality of it coming from the Old Testament about slaves. This book of the covenant really just taught these own slave owners how to live life that would be pleasing to you. And God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning concerning our service to our master, to you, Lord. And how love when it's real, when it's genuine, changes everything. God, I pray you would speak to our hearts. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just ask for a few moments, no one be looking around, but just a simple question. An opportunity to respond to what you've heard today.